When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, literary director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. My guest for today's episode, I'm delighted to say, is Susan Orlean, whose New Yorker articles across the last 30 years, along with books such as The Orchid Thief, The Library Book, and her biography of the movie star dog Rin Tin Tin, have made her one of the most beloved and distinctive writers. What I personally prize above all in Susan, the writer as well as the person, is her magnificent curiosity and her great sense of humor. Her stories make me a better observer. They heighten my appreciation for the beauty and fascination of apparently ordinary characters who, under her close and brilliant scrutiny, turn out, indeed, to be extraordinary. Her latest book, On Animals, is a collection of funny, surprising pieces about, you guessed it, those species of beings with whom we humans share the earth with sometimes comical and sometimes grim, but almost always enlightening results. Welcome to Beyond the Page, Susan. I'm so happy to be with you. I'm so glad you're here. This is going to be fun. So speaking of species, I thought I might start us off today with a little clip from your great talk at last summer's Sun Valley Writers Conference, in which you described your now legendary encounter with that most particular of species, namely the 10-year-old American boy. And as I recall it, you were asked by the editor of Esquire at the time, Terry McDonald, if you'd be interested in writing a cover article, which was a big deal for you at the time, which was to be a celebrity profile of the 10-year-old movie star Macaulay Culkin of Home Alone fame. Would you briefly set up for us how you ended up writing about a very different 10-year-old boy instead? You're right. It was a very big deal for me to get this. was the first story I'd ever done for Esquire. And, you know, would, you would assume, and I would assume looking back on it, that I would immediately say yes to whatever <laughs> conditions had been imposed on the assignment. I couldn't help, though, thinking that an interview, a profile of Macaulay Culkin wasn't going to be really very revealing. And they already had a title for the story, which was The American Man, Age 10. <laughs> and I thought, but he's not the typical American man. He's a movie star. He, he probably has nothing in common with a typical 10-year-old boy. And feeling um, my oats, I guess, I went into Terry and just blurted out, I want to do this story. But how about if I find a typical 10-year-old kid 
or as typical as any typical example could be, a suburban kid, a kid who was growing up in what we would recognize as a pretty common American life. To my great amazement, and really to his eternal credit, Terry said, okay. And I, of course, (laughs) immediately thought, what am I talking about? I mean, it's a lot easier to do a story about a celebrity. People automatically have a curiosity about celebrity. Mm -hmm. And also, we had identified Macaulay Culkin. When I said I'm going to profile a 10-year-old boy, I didn't know any 10-year-old boys. (laughs) So the first problem I had was finding a 10-year-old boy. And luckily, I began asking friends who knew friends who had 10-year-old kids Hmm. And they had friends. And so through a series of connections, I met this boy who lived in a very typical middle class, upper middle class suburb in New Jersey. And he agreed to let me hang around with him. And that's where this clip picks up. It's like Wild Kingdom. Talk about a species, right? Finding this guy. So, okay, let's take a listen and then we'll come back. So... Colin Duffy, who was a very cute 10-year-old boy, agreed that he would be my subject. And I said, look, what I'll do is I'll, I'll go to school with you for a week, and we'll hang out, and just you, you just do what you want to, just do what you do, and I'll just follow around. And I'm not going to even ask you a lot of questions. I'm just going to observe. And he, you know, you know, 10-year-old boys, like, eh, whatever. So I showed up Monday morning before school, because we were going to go together to school, and he shunned me. He shunned me. I was a grown-up lady. I was going to be going to school with him. I mean, it was like suddenly the reality of how dorky this was hit him hard, and he completely shunned me. I walked behind him like a geisha. Like he, you know, walking to school, he was, and I thought, Macaulay Culkin would never have done this. And, you know, I got to school, the chairs were so little, and, um, you know, the kids all were looking at me like, who is this freak? Um, And if you want to know humility, Just go to school with some 10-year-olds. I highly recommend it. I love that. Oh, man. I swear I feel like I'm 10 again myself just listening to that. So when you, and you can see maybe as we head into On Animals, why I started thinking of Colin, right, as a species of his own, as it were. So when you think back to that piece, it's just one of my favorite pieces of all time and I can't recommend it highly enough. How do you see that experience and that the very endeavor? Well, it was a meaningful piece for me because it addressed a lot of themes that have been consistent in my work, which is the idea that you can elevate the ordinary by observing it. And, you know, I don't want to use it ordinary in any sort of pejorative way. Nobody is ordinary, but 
he was a non-celebrity and having come of age journalistically in the world of celebrity journalism, which we still live in, this was very much a kind of radical departure from that, which Mm -hmm. was to say, you know, I think people who don't have agents and managers are actually very interesting. And there is a lot to learn by observing their lives. And in fact, what struck me as really interesting is that we do much more observation of celebrity lives than we really do of more ordinary lives. So there was the sense that I was actually traveling into unknown territory as opposed to yet another celebrity profile Mm -hmm. that's very controlled, very managed. Anyone who thinks that a celebrity profile is somehow authentic is being a little bit misled. I mean, they're very, very managed experiences. So to me, this was kind of planting my flag very firmly in this territory of the observation of regular life and how rich and complex and actually how exotic it is. Mm -hmm. To me, a 10-year-old boy was fabulously exotic on every (laughs) level. It also was an exercise in having a conversation with the reader about why reading this kind of story, which doesn't promise a lot initially, Mm -hmm. is really rewarding. That's very well put. That kind of bumping up against a world in which we are guaranteed a certain thrill and kind of voyeuristic pleasure in reading about Tom Cruise, Mm -hmm. can you make an argument to a reader that it will be even more rewarding to read about something that they pass every day that feels very ordinary and that feels very familiar when the point is, and that I feel that I make over and over again that, well, actually, it's not so familiar. Right. I mean, on the surface, it seems very familiar, but the deeper look reveals how complex and unfamiliar and unknown every life is to us. You also take on the sort of anthropological element of it, which is your presence. I mean, Colin's reaction to you, which you already (laughs) talk about, is such a, it's like a third presence in the piece. And obviously, it's very funny from our point of view, our adult point of view. But it also it accounts for it's both his normalcy and the the weirdness of the situation all at once. And then there are moments when you sort of break through, like when you tell him you can drive and he suddenly becomes much more interested in you because you right. can take him to the mall. <laughs> but I mean, I think that's true in all these pieces, which is how does one approach another species, as it were, even if that other species is our own? in a way that allows those real qualities to shine through. And I was thinking about Colin in that piece when I read the opening of one of the chapters in On Animals, and this is my segue into that, but about your time hanging out in the company of a champion show dog. Okay, so would you read uh, just the first few opening lines from Show Dog? Obviously a very different sort of thing. Sure, absolutely. If I were a bitch, I'd be in love with Biff Truesdale. Biff is perfect. 
He's friendly, good looking, rich, famous, and in excellent physical condition. He almost never drools. He's not afraid of commitment. He wants children. Actually, he already has children and wants a lot more. He works hard and is a consummate professional, but he also knows how to have fun. <laughs> Sounds like a Tinder profile, it does doesn't sound. it? <laughs> and the name Biff Truesdale. I mean, it, it's uh, a porn star in the making. So, uh, but he, you know, he is definitely kind of the anti-Colin, right? So, were you thinking? This is what I was wondering. Were you thinking about these differences? Because the beginning of the Colin piece is also a kind of not a mock introduction, but an, uh, one of those kind of observational things that bring you into the fact that he's a ten-year-old boy, but He's also kind of a, a bizarre species. Were you thinking about the differences between those when you were writing about Biff, even though he's an animal, obviously, and Colin obviously was a boy? In other words, do your characters, I guess, this is the larger version, inform each other that way, piece to piece, even years apart? Absolutely. I think for one thing, the act of the observer and subject is a constant condition of being a writer. And each piece brings it up and you grapple with it in each piece, mm -hmm. whether the subject is a boy, a dog, a mountain lion, you know, whatever it is, there is the very nature of reporting, mm -hmm. the very nature of observation, the myth of objectivity. Those come up in each case. And in each case, and I think that this is the luxury of writing somewhere where I don't have to pretend to be a dispassionate, invisible observer. Right. In each case, part of the story was about my emotional response to the subject. Mm -hmm. With the 10-year-old boy, I became completely charmed by <laughs> this worldview that really hovered on the cusp of childhood and adulthood, this sort of fantasy version of the world that was absolutely entrancing. Yeah. And in the case of the show dog, if I could separate the fact that he was a dog and I was a human, I thought, oh my God, he's the perfect man. You know, he makes good money. He's good looking. He's loyal. He's, you know, and it became a kind of hilarious exercise in not only not being objective, but being utterly subjective and allowing myself to imagine a relationship with him. And, you know, I think that comes up for me a lot. I can't escape what I think all reporters grapple with all the time, which is you do have feelings about the people you write about. Yeah, we're, we're not objective. And if you're writing for a newspaper and you need to strike that objective posture, that's not a natural posture. That's a, a posture that takes work. Mm -hmm. When you're writing the kinds of pieces that I'm writing, I don't have to do that. I do have to acknowledge my presence in the story and sort of be honest about my very subjective reaction to my subject, but I feel like that enriches the story. It does. 
in this context. And it's honest. And when you're writing about an animal like Biff or some of the other animals in, in this book, are you clear from the start that he's your focus and his owners and handlers, like the humans, are going to be background? Or do you let the characters themselves show you their relative importance to the story along the way? I think it's inevitable when you're writing about animals that no matter what, the people in their orbit become a significant focus. Mm -hmm. There's no, I'm not a naturalist. I'm not writing about a wild animal in its habitat being observed without or with as little human interference mm -hmm. as possible. These are all really, and sometimes I would think about this with my animal pieces, there really wasn't one in which the people became an enormous focus mm -hmm. for the story. So do you still follow the dog show world at all? I mean, have you, have you Westminster and all that stuff? Yeah. I, you know, ever since I was a kid, I watched Westminster. It was such a ritual for me growing up and we still watch it. And now of course, we cheer on the breeds of our dogs and yep. feel very wounded that they don't <laughs> win best in show. And it's a very odd world and competing on the perfection of a living thing is such a fascinating, unrequitable pursuit that mm -hmm. I can't help but look at it and find it a sort of marvel that people still do this. And it's actually something that I've been fascinated by. I mean, it was one of the themes in The Orchid Thief was how interesting it is to pursue perfection in a living thing because a living thing changes literally moment to moment. Mm -hmm. There is no perfection. You, you can't, I mean... The and cellular makeup is constantly changing. Yeah. The age is constantly accruing. And yet we still, as a species, are fascinated by the idea of trying to perfect a living thing. Right. And that pursuit says more about us than almost anything else that we're doing in some way. Yeah. I mean, times. I assume it's the sort of diversion from the idea that mm -hmm. we can't perfect ourselves, although there are certainly people who make that their life mission to, um, to perfect themselves. And this lends, I think, a, a certain anthropomorphic quality to so many things, whether we're aware of it or not. And one of the things the great pleasures of this collection for me was coming across these little anthropomorphic descriptions that you make about the appearance of your animal characters. I'm just going to read two here. Here's one about Biff, who, as you know, of course, is a boxer. He has a dark mask, spongy lips, a wishbone-shaped white blaze, and the earnest and slightly careworn expression of a small-town mare. <laughs> Mares should be so lucky, of course. <laughs> and here you are on a mule that's for sale. Next in the ring was a chestnut mule with a bristling blonde mane and the sleepy, watchful gaze of a bank guard. It's just, it's just perfect. So speaking of mules, that's, there's my segue. There's a wonderful chapter in the book on them. And I came away with a feeling, true about donkeys as well in a different chapter, that your experience in writing the piece was one of discovery for you and a kind of ever-deepening respect for an animal whose role in our society, like our world, 
has been reduced almost to a footnote at this point in history, whereas at one time it was extraordinarily large. So can you tell us how you got into the mule world? Because not everyone does. Yeah, well, I knew nothing about mules. In fact, I'm not sure I'd ever actually seen a mule. And then I stumbled across a story through my brother-in-law about a U.S. Army effort, a very wrong-headed U.S. Army effort to transport uh, about 1,200 mules to Afghanistan to use in the war in Afghanistan. Hmm. And of course, it was something that in itself, the operation was so crazy that I got very interested but also the realization that, oh, there's terrain that we haven't mastered with machinery. Mm -hmm. The terrain of Afghanistan, really the best way to get over the mountains carrying anti-aircraft missiles is using a mule. And it was really like somebody telling you that you needed to use the best watch available as a sundial. I mean, it... it <laughs> It seemed so incredibly anachronistic, and yet I also found it marvelous to think that there's something that an animal still can do better than anything that we've invented. And what is it about a mule? So just for those who don't know, a mule is a genetic blend, right? Of it, Right. It's, yeah, I mean, it's a man-made it right. uh, creature that's the cross between a horse and a donkey. And they've been around for a very long time. George Washington was a big mule breeder. And they're really quite remarkable animals. And they tend to have the best qualities of horses and donkeys. But they have the size of a horse. And donkeys are really too small for certain tasks. And they're much sturdier and stronger than horses. And part of what I love about mules, and that to me gave the story a certain poignancy, is they're sterile. They mm. can't reproduce because their DNA is wonky because of the cross right. between a horse and a donkey. And since most animals, including humans, are driven in part by an unconscious desire to reproduce, mm -hmm. the idea that this species is kind of a one-off. Each mule lives only for its own existence it on Earth. Poignant. And I found that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was very moving. And, you know, they've been very, very valued. They used to be the primary source of kind of farm equipment or the, the primary tractor pullers. And they were really central to the development of the U.S. And then over time... Of course, they were replaced by tractors, and they've become sort of hobby animals. There's still people who farm with mules, but it's really like knitting or, you know, it's right. Which means an artisanal <laughs> farming technique. So when people in today's culture are brought into contact with such anachronistic creatures, you get sometimes very funny uh, bits. And so... You go back to those Marines at the Marine Corps Mountain Warfare Training Center in California. I just love this description that you have of their first encounters with the real heroes of the piece, who are the mules. Would you just read this little exchange? Do you mind? Absolutely. So these are Marines who are being trained to work on the battlefield with mules. 
A few of the Marines holding long coils of rope were standing near a big sorrel mule named Edgar, who had a long, soft nose and mild eyes, but the reputation of being a kicker. <laughs> Private, ever work with a mule? Parkhurst asked one of the young men. Negative, sir. I'm from the suburbs, sir. You, Private? Parkhurst asked the next Marine. Ever work with a mule? A donkey? A llama? A goat? Negative, sir. I'm a surfer. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of right out of uh, Catch-22 or Joe Heller, you know, one of those Joe Heller books. Oh, my books. God. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, these, not only had they never worked with a mule, which, of course, most people have not like encountered a, goat, a mule. a llama, there. you know, a goldfish, Nothing. whatever. Yeah, didn't really ever touch any kind of animal. And the thing is that the Army has actually re-embraced the use of mules and um, mm. animals in the field because of the war in Afghanistan yeah. and realizing that that kind of terrain, this is really the smartest way to traverse these very, very rugged, dry areas. And the army had used thousands and thousands and thousands of animals in particularly in World War One, but even in World War Two, and then of course had abandoned them as we became more and more um, technologically advanced. And yet now we've returned to using them in certain contexts because they really can't be improved upon. And you have another wonderful piece in the book about donkeys, which I love donkeys. They are extraordinary animals, but about the Fez in Morocco, right? And the walled city of... Um, the, the Medina Yeah, the Medina, in Fez. exactly, in Fez. Yeah. And how basically there's an entire community of working donkeys that just move around by themselves almost. They have their own comings and goings. They show up for work. They go back. And you're there and you're observing this, and there's an extraordinary veterinarian outpost for these animals, for free. And sometimes the donkeys just make their way there on their own. And it gives one a great sense of hope in a way by looking back, we're able to look forward. And that's the continuity, of course, of animals. So moving on from pack animals, as it were, to I want to talk about chickens, because this was it's one of my favorite pieces in the book. It's called The It Bird. It has all sorts of pleasures, including a cameo, a Martha Stewart cameo, <laughs> and it turns out, which I had not, I must say, I had not fully appreciated that you are one serious chicken lady, Susan Orlean. So I, I am. Yes. And I would like you to share with us like how that happened, because it was not an obvious thing that was going to happen in your life. And what is it about chickens that makes them such a great subject and part of your life, basically? Well, I certainly would never have picked myself as a chicken person. And I've never been particularly interested in birds. I haven't had a kind of instinct toward birds in general. But my husband and I were living up in the country. And I thought, oh, I'm living up in the country now. I'm going to get a horse, of course, to mm -hmm. fulfill my childhood dreams. And then I got scared because horses are a lot of work. Yep. I thought, I'm not sure that I'm quite ready to manage a horse, but I wanted animals. 
right around that time, I just started, and I wasn't even aware of this, that there was this just under the surface of bubbling interest in backyard chickens. Chickens are, you know, it used to be that everybody had chickens. When the U.S. was primarily an agrarian culture, everybody had chickens. Mm. They're easy. They produce protein. They are small. They're very manageable. And then, of course, as we all moved into the city, nobody had chickens. (laughs) It was rare that, I mean, people just didn't have chickens anymore. And they didn't keep a couple of chickens around and people bought eggs in the supermarket. But there was a sort of new appreciation. And I really do give Martha Stewart a lot of credit for this because she had chickens. They were good looking chickens. Martha's. They were beautiful chickens. She showed them off like supermodels in her magazine. For the first time, I think people began thinking, wow, chickens are really beautiful. And then Martha Stewart had these breeds that would lay like pastel colored (laughs) eggs. So suddenly it became more and more appealing and people began realizing, wow, it's actually really easy to have chickens. And, you know, this arose at the time that people were starting to do a lot of things themselves that they could have very easily gone to a store for. They were knitting, they were making yogurt, they were baking bread. There was a sort of re-embrace of these time-consuming farm chores that people began feeling, wow, this is very satisfying to do this. So chickens were really a natural extension from making your own quilts. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And also people became increasingly interested in the source of their food. Where is this food? Was this animal miserable while it was providing my food? Well, here I am living in the country with 55 acres. And the next thing I knew, I had chickens and I started with four. And I had no idea what I was getting into. I was kind of terrified. And I immediately fell in love with them. And the thing about chickens is it's really easy to keep getting more chickens. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, <laughs> particularly when you're living in the country and you drive. I, I mean, one time, and this is an absolutely true story, I'd gone to CVS to buy shampoo. And on the way home, I saw a sign. Um, this isn't chickens, but it was a sign saying guinea fowl free. And I thought, oh, guinea fowl. Like, I've never thought of having guinea. Well, now I'm going to have guinea fowl. So and I got four guinea fowl. And I came home and my husband said, did you get your shampoo? And I said, yeah, I got some guinea <laughs> like, fowl. <laughs> I mean, is it an emotional bond that you had with your chickens? I know there were foxes and yes. there can be some tragedy. And how would you compare that relationship? Because it's a working relationship, too, with right. relationship we have with our dogs or cats? Well, it was really interesting. It is a different relationship. And the animals that don't come into your house exist in a different stratum Mm -hmm. than the animals like dogs and cats that do live in your house. Mm -hmm. I think that's almost the specific boundary is do they live in the house with you or not? 
And yet I think that the animals that you can handle and pick up and identify, you do develop a sense of connection. I mean, I named all my chickens. Animal husbandry is very emotional. I mean, even if you have a herd of sheep and I would say if you're a a farmer who's doing this for a living, you have to be sort of expeditious about Mm -hmm. your emotions. You can't get very caught up in each and every animal because there's a lot of death on a farm. Mm -hmm. No matter how well you take care of your animals, you're going to experience that. But I felt very connected to my chickens. I never thought, gee, I'm going to put diapers on them and bring them into the house. That's but good I that you did, didn't think P- that. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it is very good. But there are people who do that, by the way. <laughs> um, but I knew them each intimately, and I worried about them. I mm-hmm. fussed over them, and I loved them. I loved taking care of them. I loved the fact that they trusted me. Mm-hmm. And that I could walk into their coop and they would approach me. And it changes your perception of what your daily life is and what it's about, I would imagine. I mean, right now, you're in L.A. I know your lovely patio and garden. And I I imagine you're not keeping chickens there, right? I mean, I, I don't know how the neighbors would take it. However, we are in this pandemic time. We're in a time of between the pandemic, climate change, various biological and existential threats that everybody seems to be weighed under by. And I wonder if you feel or sense that that is changing people's relationship to raising animals like chickens or, or such things? Absolutely. McMurray Hatchery, which is the biggest rare breed hatchery in the country, said that whenever there is some crisis or some sense of foreboding, they sell out entirely. Wow. At Y2K, that year, 2000, they sold every single chicken that they had. (laughs) And we're talking thousands of chickens. Again, when the recession hit, they were selling all of their chickens. And by the way, some of my neighbors do have chickens and it is legal to have hens in LA. You can't have a rooster because of noise issues, Mm -hmm. but you can have hens. And, you know, I think the pandemic, uh, there were a lot of us who started thinking, all right, how can I be self-sustaining? What can I do um, if we're in crisis? Do I know how to make my own bread? Do I know how to take care of myself? The thing about chickens is, and this is why it's so perfect for people like me who are real lightweights, you can get protein without killing anything. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the next natural segue is I'm going to get goats and raise them and slaughter them myself. I mean, that's a leap that I don't think most people are going to make. But chickens... Chickens are really, in a way, an incredibly easy animal Mm -hmm. to take care of and to get benefits from. And it requires almost no work. And suddenly you have lots of eggs. It's something about our connection with animals and how we feel about them. And especially when we ourselves feel threatened or anxious or or whatever it is, the sort of and there's a little section toward the back of the book called dog memory. 
Um, and you and I are both massive dog people. But I, I wonder if you could just read this little bit that there, just about that. Sure. If therapists didn't charge you and were willing to chase sticks, they would be dogs. The kindly and receptive silence, the respect for secrets, the inexhaustible supply of attention, these are a dog's and a therapist's finest qualities. Dogs, though, are more fun than therapists, more tender, more dear, and certainly more admiring. <laughs> I do wish I'd read that before I, I paid for my psychoanalysis in my 20s. But um, it, right. anyway, better, better, <laughs> exactly. late, better late than never. So when you're looking around now and you have this, I mean, putting together this collection must have been interesting, right? Looking back and realizing these threads that you were probably aware of, but not quite so aware of, like how it over the years. And I know you're working on a memoir and always looking around for other stories. Do you see... Thinking about animals, I guess, thinking about species and where we are now as a society, do you see other stories sort of percolating that have to do with animals and us and, and what's right. happening? You don't have to spill your beans here. I know you have to keep your secrets, but... I feel like I'm always noticing those stories, partly because on a very simple level, I just like animals. Mm. So stories about animals interest me a lot out of pure enjoyment. I also think it's an unusually good way to observe people. When I think about a lot of the stories in this collection, as you asked earlier, there's so much about the way we react to other things in the world and particularly other living things. What do we project on them? What do we want from them? What do they give us? You could certainly say that about observing people with people, but there's something particularly revealing to me about seeing our response to non-human things. In writing Rin Tin Tin was a wonderful opportunity to simply look at this recurring image of the heroic dog over a hundred years of history yep. and and how it keeps fulfilling something we need. So I think many of us who are nonfiction writers find over time that we're drawn kind of naturally to subjects over and over again, because we're still figuring them out. And there's still more there yeah. that you want to look at again and say, well, was it right the first time that I observed this? Is this another different example? Or this is a completely different kind of animal. What do we bring to that? I mean, the last big story I wrote for The New Yorker was about rabbits and, yes. you know, our relationship to rabbits is a really fraught, odd relationship. And I had never thought about it. I never think about rabbits. And you point out they're sort of half wild and half domesticated in a sense. Yeah. yeah. And they're really the only animals that we keep in equal proportion as pets and as products, as meat and fur. We don't do that with any other animal. We keep cattle for meat and leather, but we don't keep them in our house and have them sleep in our bed. Yeah. With rabbits, if someone has a rabbit, there's no knowing whether it's their pet, 
I'm sure most of us were imprinted by that fabulous moment in, I believe it was Michael Moore film where somebody had, and you see signs out in the country all the time, rabbits, pets, or meat. Right. And we don't have that relationship with any other animal. We, in this culture, we mm-hmm. don't eat dogs and cats. So they are pets. That's that, so it, it, it's more complicated. Reading these pieces in the book and thinking about it, we need to be thinking about these things, however we come to it or whatever it elicits in us. And I always feel what an impoverishment it would be to have no animals in your life. Mm. Uh, but we also have to question our relationship with each animal, with the animals we do know. And yeah. uh, it's complicated. Well, it's very complicated. And I think that I wrote about people who have a relationship with animals that pushes into a different realm where they have overly identified with the animal, that they have afforded almost the same kind of consideration they would a human. And Mm -hmm. you can't help but think, well, is that right? Is that, what does it mean? What? And there are plenty of people who would argue that we should do that. I mean, that there's definitely a movement that's been born in fairly recent time of saying animals should be granted legal personhood. And there is even a movement saying we shouldn't be allowed to keep dogs and cats as pets because that's slavery. Hmm. I mean, it's not a simple relationship. And I think that while most of us probably feel comfortable with our relationship to our animals, if you really begin examining it, you can see where it can bleed into the realm of certain kind of lack of clarity about what's right and what's not right. Yeah. If not a pathology of a certain kind in all of us, part of which we embrace. Well, I can't wait for your next foray into the animal kingdom. I love these stories, and my dog is lying here under my desk snoring away, and it's such a pleasure to talk with you always. I love the way you see the world and what makes you interested. So, Thanks, John. It's absolutely my pleasure, and it's so much fun to talk about these stories. They're all, I guess each story that I've done has been near and dear to me, but the pieces about animals have had a special resonance for me. And yeah, I can see probably it. because it's something that I just have such a lot of emotion about. And so they've been really special to write. Yeah, that's uh, great. All right. Well, I will see you soon and can't wait to see you back in Sun Valley as well. I can't wait myself. I look forward right. to it. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Take good care. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes at lithub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shelliday.